how does one need to show up in order to create a context for people to be the best versions of themselves and do their best work? What are the practical skills and tools that boost one's practice of leadership in order to do that? These are the challenges that we as leadership practitioners approach every day as we observe and coach people in all kinds of roles, in all levels of organizations, and at organizations of various sizes. In this podcast, we'll share our experiences, the experiences of the people we support, and what we see as working. I'm Jonathan Rosenblatt. And I'm Marlene Jabrowski. Welcome to the Leadership Practitioner Podcast. Hey, Marlene. Hey, JR. So today we have Amanda on the podcast with us. Hey, Amanda. Hey, JR. Why don't you give us a little bit of an intro, who you are, what you do, what your area of uh, specialization is? Sure. So my name is Amanda Youssef. I'm a registered psychotherapist. I own a private practice in Hamilton and Burlington. Amazing. Marlene and I talk a lot when we talk about leadership practitioner and practicing leadership, we talk a lot about empathy. And we talk about it in the context of, you know, just like why it's important from a business context or from an organizational context. And what I'd love to go a little bit deeper is just really how empathy actually works in humans, why we need it, why it's important and and all that kind of stuff. So maybe if we could just start with, I know what our definition of empathy is, but when, when you think of empathy, what comes to mind or how do you define empathy? Yeah, I think empathy, it's something that most people think they understand, but sometimes they confuse it with sympathy. But empathy is really getting into someone else's experience as much as somebody can and really understanding their feeling from a particular depth. So their experience, their feeling, what's going on in their life from their frame of reference. You mentioned you mentioned a kind of distinction between empathy and sympathy. Where where do people often kind of go wrong in that distinction? I think sympathy is uh, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well then they're feeling what someone else is feeling. And that is usually blurring the lines so that now there's, um, there's a bit of a lack of boundary between me and you. And empathy, you still retain yourself as a separate being, and you're very well aware that you are choosing to step into someone else's experience, but you haven't blurred the line and kind of become them. That element of choice comes to play in it. Yes. Whereas with sympathy, there's almost an immersion. Yeah, and an unconscious kind of thing that happens instead of an awareness and intentional conscious choice. I'm, I'm laughing, JR. I'm expecting you to jump on that word intention. <laughs> I just love the fact that it shows up in every single one of our podcasts, right? Because, or even in, I mean, every time we talk leadership practitioner, it always comes up. Something that's so vital to to just being goes back to what you were saying before, Marlene, being a choice and choosing to be a certain way. You know, we talk about connecting and empathizing, and we look at it as that is an intentional choice that you're making because you're putting value on the relationship and and what it means to you know what it means as a data point to create a context where people can be the best versions of themselves. When you think about empathy, how do you think about it in terms of what it does on a, on a human level? 
Well, I think connection is the word. I mean, connections is, is in my business name for a reason. I think our world revolves around connecting with ourselves and with other people. Empathy, I think, is the primary mode of connecting. Some people, I think, are perhaps born with a higher amount of empathy to begin with. And there are some people that it seems like we have to teach empathy, that it's it's so vital to being able to function and to connect with other people, to understand other people, to understand ourselves, that without it, uh, we really do struggle. When I have someone in front of me who has a lot of empathy, while sometimes that's draining for them, they're going to be able to learn and grow and, and make a lot of change in their life a lot faster than when I have to teach empathy first to begin with. So, I mean, for, for the sake of sounding like a little kid, but I'm, just, I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, but why? Right? Like, <laughs> still. So, I get, I get what, like, what happens when you have it and what happens when you don't. Yeah. But still, it's almost like I'm still wondering, why is it so fundamental? Like, why is it such a, you, you mentioned like a method of connection. Mm. Why? What does it do for us, I guess, psychologically? I think people who are highly empathic view other people, other people's stories as perhaps more interesting than their own. They're driven by curiosity to deeply connect with another person. When we understand other people, especially people who have vastly different experiences than us, we're brought closer. I think it also helps with like on a mass level, it reduces prejudice and discrimination anything that distances people. Because when we have empathy, we find the commonality. We find a way to bring that person closer to us. I love the way that if we sort of stir back in that distinction between empathy and sympathy, empathy draws people together, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. But it, it nevertheless lets people's differences remain distinct. Yes. Whereas sympathy would kind of ask everyone to kind of become the same Borg mind. Yes. And very mindlessly, right? Very unaware. Mm -hmm. So we can make choices around recognizing other people's difference, getting curious about that difference, mm -hmm. choosing to be curious about that difference mm -hmm. and noticing that difference. So back to that, the idea of the leadership where we're, we're sharing a common goal the common goal then can be enriched by those differences. Yes. I think also empathy helps us to see, to sort of be able to see the bigger picture of how we have a lot of the same. I mean, if you look at human emotion across cultures, across ages, people display similar um, facial expressions when they're having a feeling, right? We don't have to use words. Our body language does it for us. So, I mean, that is something that we have in common with other humans, even if we have no idea about their actual story yet. So even they may look different than us, have a different story, have a different way of seeing the world, but they feel and we're able to connect on the feeling level often before we can connect any, any other way. And of course, I'm going to have to ask the question again. But why? Like, <laughs> what, why do we have to connect on that emotional level, especially because, you know, I mean, this is this is sort of bringing the topic 
uh, dare I say, back or or maybe bringing the topic up to begin with. But for so many years and in so many organizations, this concept of feeling and empathy and all that kind of stuff was systematically removed, right? And, and a lot of times, you know, we talk about the transactionality of things, right? Mm-hmm. Still got stuff done. But all of a sudden, everybody is talking now about empathy and, you know, and and why it's important. Actually, funny enough, everyone is talking about empathy, but rarely is anyone talking about why it's important to bring the feelings back. What are your thoughts on that? Why why bring the feelings back or in, I should say? (laughs) Or why, yeah, why pay attention to the feelings again and give them space? Yeah. I think it in a lot of ways comes back to the fact that we as humans are, are pack animals, really. We need each other. I think Western society, we're quite individualistic. We don't love the idea that we need each other. We like to be independent and you know really assert that in everything that we do. And there's a huge level of vulnerability in recognizing that we need each other, that we are interdependent beings, not just independent beings. So if we need each other, we need to be able to connect. We need to be able to make connections that last. We need to make connections that are of depth and are genuine. And all of that, I mean, that starts first with us being able to do that with ourselves, to recognize what our feelings are, label them, give them attention, time and space. And then we naturally can do that for other people because we are pack animals. I wonder, you know, just thinking about it from that perspective, Marlene, like we spend a lot of time in in organizations and even just the thought of kind of saying, hey, we we need each other. I know for me, and I'd love to hear Marlene in, in some of your situations, you know, for me, every time I say, yeah, you know, like we need each other to get this done. People would look at me like, no, I could do this by myself. And now let me show you. Yeah, we actually, well, we actually have come up with, uh, we being sort of any folks working in this space have found ways of talking about this because on a very gut level, we understand that we're all pack animals and we've seen what happens when that gets ignored. And we've watched the incredible waste that happens, even within very kind of so-called rational systems. We watch the waste that's produced when people kind of exhaust themselves, kind of working in silos, working competitively. And th- there's a kind of fiction that the competition results in more uh, aggressive uh, outcomes. Often what we see is an incredible amount of waste. To, to pitch this to folks who are already thinking on that track, the clincher often is if you want to solve even complicated problems, and, and certainly if you want to solve complex problems, you need other people to do that because complexity doesn't have the answer. Uh, you, don't, you don't have the answer going in. Like I'm thinking of a complex engineering problem. You don't have the answer going in. You don't know the conditions that are going to hit you along the way. And you need the diversity of voices and perspective of other people. And so we're now in the work world in this place where we can't actually move forward with the problems, the kinds of problems that we need to solve in the 21st century. We just can't do it until we learn how to play nice with each other. In order to play nice with each other, oh, hey, empathy is required. (laughs) Yeah. I saw this really heightened by 
COVID. I know all of us have been aware of, you know, when we have lockdowns and when we are, you know, not permitted to see loved ones. We've seen now over the long haul what that does to people personally, what it does to their connections, their family members, um, what it does to their productivity all of those things, right? And I mean, I've seen it even within my own offices and with my own staff. When we were in the height of the pandemic and every client we saw was virtual, no one was coming into the office, my, uh, my staff still chose to come into the office every day, go into their separate rooms and sit in front of their computer, knowing that on the other side of the wall is another human. They needed to be engaged with people, even just passing each other in the hallway with our masks on. We needed to know someone else was there. A lot of them would say, I just, I can't be at home anymore. I just can't do this. I can't be by myself. It's not that they don't go into their sessions hour after hour by themselves, but they need to know that they're still surrounded by their team. It's why I don't work as a silo. I tried to work alone and that lasted for six months. And then the very first offer of, would you like an intern? Yes, I would. <laughs> I'm like a human. Come on board. Because, yeah, because I, I think we do need other people and to solve problems, to expand, to learn, to be productive. Doing it together, especially if we can get along, is, is definitely more effective. And fun. I, I claim it's just simply more fun. Yes. Yeah. I love how you said if, you know, if we can get along and, you know, and, and I suspect that the getting along part still brings us full circle back to empathy. What else is needed in order to get along? I think part of what we need is experiential empathy. For example, I always joke and say, you know, I can't sell to my clients what I wouldn't buy myself. And what I mean by that is if I want to try a brand new therapy on someone, guess what? First, I'm going to go and have it tried on me first, right? I want to know how does this feel and what do I experience so that I have a window into what my clients are about to experience. I, I would call that experiential empathy. I don't actually know if that's like a term or not. <laughs> well, it is it is now. Now. <laughs> but yeah, it's being able to not just hear someone's story or know what someone's going through or, you know, knowing what they need to do, but saying, well, I'm going to do it too. You know, you see it even when uh, someone's diagnosed with cancer and has to go through chemo treatments and then their best friend shaves their head too. It's experiential empathy. It's, listen, I'm here with you. I'm going to feel as much as I can with you and I'm going to join in with you as much as I can. Why? So that you don't feel alone because nobody, no matter how independent we like to think we are, nobody loves to be alone all the time. JR, I'm, I'm thinking about the way that we say to our learners, it's so important to do the inner leadership practices first and literally do like understand the framework, the leadership framework in terms of yourself first before it's something done to other people. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because when we do this with ourselves first, we learn that with in the most profound way. And then when we're doing this with other people, if we've done our work and we've done it with ourselves first, it becomes with other people. And if we kind of went straight to other people first, it would be very easy to do these things to other people. Mm -hmm. That is so alienating. Right. And, and 
we know instinctively not to do that. But I think you've given us some theoretical kind of background as to why one of the reasons why that would be so important. I would imagine it would be strange to kind of go in having never felt empathy, let's say yourself, to try to try to go and do that in a context where you're trying to, you know, help people be the best versions of themselves. It's kind of like, well, you, you simply don't have the data. And so in order to to know how to, I mean, unless you're going to go do onto someone else empathy, which you can't, right? You, you had to have experienced it yourself. Now, I want to go back to something, Amanda, that you had said earlier about teaching empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, so obviously someone who was born, who is born more empathetic or is in tune to that, it would be a lot easier to then be empathetic towards others. Cool. But for those who maybe not, or perhaps I'll say grew up in a very traditional uh, corporate environment or in a very traditional work environment where empathy was not really a thing and wasn't required, like, how do you? enable even just becoming aware of what empathy is and and starting to get in touch with that? There is a program, uh, I think it originated in Canada called The Roots of Empathy. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's an interesting program that was piloted and I think continued on in elementary schools where someone would bring in a baby of like six months old to a year old into a classroom like a JK, SK classroom. And the intention was to teach children empathy by having them interact with this baby. Because babies are, I mean, it's, it's all body language before they're verbal. And it's all feelings all the time. So what we do is we, we allow children to be in the, the vicinity of other feelings. And with babies, it's often big feelings. And we also give them the language to understand it. So if they may not understand, oh, that's the baby being frustrated. When we use that word frustrated, the kids go, oh, that's frustration. Okay. So then when I feel that way or I look that way, maybe I'm frustrated. Right. So we start to give them the vernacular for that, which also means they start to recognize it in their peers. So we are building those connections a little bit at a time, but using this very primary kind of example. So that works for um, little children. What about adults? In, in a work environment, in a work context, that it's kind of like, again, foreign concept for whatever reason, it doesn't matter but find it perhaps challenging to see above and beyond the transactional nature of their interactions. Yeah. Now what? So how do you teach empathy when you're dealing with someone who didn't have the benefit of, you know, being in JK and having a little baby come and be their teacher? I think it starts with the person and their own feelings first. A lot of times what happens when we're talking about empathy, we're we're largely talking about feeling and emotion. And what happens is if we didn't grow up with a lot of vernacular for, for feelings and, you know, just not much uh, attention paid to feelings, then we become very uncomfortable with the concept of feeling in ourselves. So we can't tolerate our own feelings, let alone the feeling of someone else in the same room as us. So what we have to do first is teach that adult or that teenager to understand what feelings they're experiencing and stay and tolerate and realize that 
their feelings come and go. Their feelings are not going to eat them alive. And that feelings are valuable and they give us a ton of information. Compared to what the children are learning, it sounds like the adults also are learning how to kind of enrich their emotion concept vocabulary. Yes, absolutely. And understanding to the depths of their feelings. A lot of times we're okay with experiencing, you know, one emotion and not another. For some people, it's, you know, I'm okay being angry and frustrated because that makes me feel strong and I'm mobilized. And I don't really realize that what's underneath my anger and frustration is grief or shame, right? Or sadness. And for other people, anger is like the, 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 the quote unquote bad emotion, and it's to be avoided at all costs. So even when they are livid, it's no, no, I'm fine. And so then we have to teach them on a visceral, a somatic level. Tell me what's going on in your body now so that we can decipher what feeling is there because it's not fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as they build that capacity for themselves, then people can bring it to each other and begin to have a shared language for talking about the responses to a particular situation and build a kind of collective emotional language to talk about what's going on. Yes. I think, you know, grief is a really good example. I was listening to something on on the radio this morning coming into work. A, uh, a woman had written a book about her grief and, of course, was talking about the way that people respond when someone is in the depths of their grief. And a lot of times grief is a, is a rather intolerable emotion for us. So if we're around someone else who is grieving and we're empathizing with that and it's so painful and so uncomfortable, what do we rush to? I want to make this person feel better. I want them to feel better, but I, I want me to feel better around them because the empathy is too hard for this particular emotion. And one of the biggest gifts we can give someone is recognize that they are in grief and then you know, you simply say, I'm sorry that you're going through this, but you don't say any sort of platitude to try to make it better because you can't, right? And then you have to tolerate your own experience and stay with the other person instead of this is too much for me, out I go. And that keeps the connection. You, you work in that zone of that intensity with people, I mean, given, given your job. And as coaches, of course, we don't work in zones that often are as intense. But I'm hearing a resonance between what you're describing and what we do, where often the, the discomfort that the group of people are facing is that there's some kind of problem they're trying to solve in order to achieve some kind of goal, some kind of shared goal. And as coaches, we're often inviting people to stay a little bit longer in that place of discomfort and mull possibilities together before immediately jumping to the first solution that comes to mind. Like I'm actually hearing a resonance of it's an invitation to remain in that zone of ambiguity or discomfort for longer. I mean, you're, in the case of grief, you just remain there until the other person is ready to move out of their grief. In our case, it would be when it sort of serves the group best to come from that period of exploration and remaining in uncertainty to come back to that much more emotionally comfortable place of certainty and, okay, this is what we're going to do together. I'm seeing you nod. Are you hearing that resonance as well? Yeah, I think what I'm really paying attention to as well is, I mean, I'm picturing as you're talking, when you're working as a coach, that you have a team that you're working with. And so you may 
uh, suggest at different points to have the whole team hold in the space that they're in, even if it's uncomfortable. But what makes it more tolerable is holding together. So you're teaching the team, you don't have to sit in this discomfort of, I don't know what to do here, because that's what makes it intolerable. You're saying, I don't know what to do either. Let's sit together and let's wait this out. We will figure it out, but let's wait here together. And that's what I do hour after hour with my clients, with the therapist I I supervise. It's the same thing of, I may not be able to solve the problem. I may not be able to see the solution, but I can see you and I can see your pain and I'm going to stay right here with you in your pain until you're ready to move. <laughs> I love that. I mean, and we've been talking about it in the context of coaches, but really what we're, what we're doing as coaches is modeling uh, leadership practice. This is not something that is reserved for therapists like yourself. It's not reserved for coaches like Marlene and I. It's actually just a leadership practice to hold that space and allow, you know, allow these things to flow and then see what happens. And I think you're hitting on something really important with empathy as well, the modeling, whether it's coaches modeling for their team, whether it's a therapist modeling appropriate affect for a client, whether it's a parent modeling empathy for their child, you know, their little two-year-old that's having a tantrum in the middle of the grocery store, and that parent is sharing their calm and not the chaos, and is recognizing, empathizing with that two-year-old that what's happening right now is this two-year-old is completely dysregulated and doesn't know how to calm down, and isn't trying to upset anybody, but cannot stop. And the best thing as a parent to do is to stay, is to hold, and to communicate this feeling is okay. It will pass. I'm not going anywhere. And, and then we will move to the next one together. Thereby creating the context where people can be the best versions of themselves and do their best work. Work in this case, being if it's in a professional context or even work that the kid, like the child needs to do in working through their emotion. Yes. But what about those scenarios where, you know, someone listening to us talking about right now, like, and, and when I was listening, I was, I was picturing a couple of people that I know that would be listening to us being like, there is no way that we have time for these emotions and that we have time for empathy or we have time for holding space for all of these things. We just need to get things done. So they're going to be hearing us talking about this stuff and be like, yeah, no, not going to happen. What do you say to those people? I say, is what you're currently doing working? (laughs) (laughs) Want to keep doing it? That's actually not a terribly uncommon thing for me to encounter if I have a couple in therapy. Usually one person's kind of gung-ho about going to couples therapy and the other person's kind of getting dragged and coaxed into it. Often the person that was a little reluctant is kind of like, I don't see the point in talking about our feelings, in talking about the issues. Let's just solve it. And my answer is usually like, well, how's that been working out for you? Why are you here? So sometimes we have to kind of front load our efforts a little bit. We have to stop and give our feelings and the feelings of the people around us time and space and attention, and then we can solve the problem. You you know, often nobody's going to buy it until they try it, right? 
So you just, you really, you just have to talk someone into trying it for a little while first. And then they see that emotions carry information and carry a lot of the solution. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing these perspectives and really um, challenging us to deepen our conversation and get some clarity around the substantial role that empathy has in leadership work. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Practitioner Podcast. We invite you to share your thoughts on this episode and your thoughts on how you practice leadership. Join us in the Leadership Practitioner Connection, our community of like-minded practitioners who aspire to create a context for people to be the best versions of themselves and do their best work. You can find it at leadershippractitioner.org slash connection. Mm-hmm.